Hello and welcome to the latest Herbert Smith Freehills Private Wealth and Charities podcast. My name is Richard Norwich. I'm a partner in the London office of Herbert Smith Freehills and I head up our charities work. Delighted today to be joined by my colleague Hussein Mathani, who's literally sat next to me, which is not something you can often say in the current environment. And Hussein's an active member of our charities law team, as well as being a disputes associate. This is the latest in a series of podcasts where we're sitting down for conversations with clients and contacts of people at the coalface in the charities sector to hear more about what their specific charity does, some of the challenges that they face, and hopefully share a few more stories to help other people in similar positions. Uh, And if you haven't had the opportunity to listen to any of the ones we've done so far, Uh, The details are available on the website and we'll put some links in the podcast notes as well so you can find them easily enough. Today, I'm delighted that we're joined by Dan Guinness from Beyond Equality. Thanks so much for joining us, Dan. Thanks for your time today. Really um, grateful for you to to squeeze us in because I know there are lots of demands on your time and we'll, we'll probably hear a bit more about that as we go through. But before we dive into uh, Beyond Equality and what it does, maybe you can tell us a bit about your background and, and you know, how you ended up in this sector at all. Yeah, well, it's a pleasure to be here, Richard and Hussein. Uh, thank you for the invitation. And we, we've we got to know each other because HSF just does such incredible work supporting what we do and adding that structure in the background to the charity and to its operations, which we're very grateful for. So my own background I came into this really from two sorts of directions. One was from an academic interest. My most recent studies were initially begun at Oxford University, where I did a DPhil, which is a PhD, in cultural and social anthropology, and then uh, went from there to work in the Netherlands at the University of Amsterdam, where I was doing a postdoctoral research project. And that project was looking at global migration patterns uh, in order to, of humans to fit in with different labour markets and the ways in which those need to be structured by a social system that sits behind them. So how can we actually get groups of people enabled by their families, by their villages, by their communities, particularly if we're looking at the global south, to dedicate a huge amount of time and resource to actually getting the sorts of training, the sorts of skills that they need to be able to go overseas and enter into these different opportunities. And I think sometimes when we're coming from our perspectives where there's been a a nationalised education system or to a certain extent nationalised education system or where people have a lot of very clear pathways through, we can start to to miss some of those ways in which uh, individuals and families and structures really need to actually absorb a whole range of risks, um, a whole, whole range of uncertainties about the future in order to enable individuals to make that move. Anyway, now that might seem quite different to what we do um, now in the charity, but it actually made me see very clearly how important gender was in that. Uh, Because what we see is that most of those migration patterns are extremely gendered in that uh, men will be seen to be doing one sort of work and going to some sorts of places and be enabled in a particular set of ways that women will be, uh, won't be or they'll be given a different sort of um, set of opportunities and go in a different sort of direction. And people can actually be understood in very different ways on the basis of their gender. You know, um, two people doing the same work in the same place, one might be seen as doing something that's absolutely fantastic and what their what their family needs. They might be the hero of their village. Someone else might be seen as being problematic as maybe uh, 
disrupting some of the moral and some of the familial structures of that place. So one route for me in was from that academic interest in gender. Uh, and the second route for me into this work was that I, as I began uh, at university, I got started as on a personal level, um, involved in movements um, that were looking at uh, sexual violence prevention uh, at gender equality. And as I grew through my time studying, I started to realize the ways in which actually a lot of work needs to happen with men and boys on those topics, but that the men that I was, I was interacting with, my friends, my peers that I was studying with, um, even the professors that I was working with, they didn't see that those conversations were necessarily relevant to them personally, that they could actually benefit from being part of these conversations, that they needed to know things that they didn't already know. There was a degree of apathy, there was a degree of complacency, there was a degree of defensiveness, of fear around talking about gender equality, around talking about men's roles in preventing violence against women and girls. And so that's precisely the organisation that we set up. It's targeting how this challenge of how can we collectively, as a society, as a community, as a workplace, as a school, as a university, how can we collectively be tackling some of these big, tricky, complicated, painful discussions such as and issues, such as inequalities, such as violence, um, such as mental health issues, exclusion. How can we be doing that collectively? And in particular, how can we be bringing men and boys into that conversation so they can find their role of making a positive contribution, right? rather than sitting in this space of apathy or sitting in the space of defensiveness? You know, how can we actually get that group of people in, involved? The reason why I saw it was so important is because these that shift was actually very difficult for me to make. And as I started to do the work, I realized all these parts of my life, of the way that I interact with people that I hadn't considered before and were actually causing part of the problem. So for me, our organization, Beyond Equality, has been set up as an entry point into this more broad collective movement so we can really start to address some issues around gender equality violence prevention um, and do so in ways that enable men and boys to rethink the social, social norms they might have been socialised in um, and do so to actually collectively say, well, what do we want to be? How can we do things better? How might that be better for other people as well as being better for ourselves? Fascinating. Thanks, Dan. It's a really helpful introduction to where you've got to where you are today. Are, are you able to put a bit of meat on the bones for people listening to what it is concretely that the charity does on a day-to-day -day basis, or, and given that background? Yeah, absolutely. I think the most relatable thing that people might be able to see of our work is this: the work that we do in schools and universities, where we're working with young people and we're trying to give them a chance to recognise the sorts of social norms, peer pressure, expectations, stereotypes that they're being socialised into and challenge those. Now, I, I don't know how closely people have been following the discussions throughout this year, but I think everybody has been very aware that men's violence has been put on the table, and particularly men's sexual violence, you know, both after um, the murder of Sarah Everard and Sabina Nessa, um, those conversations brought a lot to the surface 
and a lot of women in particular, but also people of all genders have been saying, no, I, we do have an issue here. We need to address this. So putting some meat on the bones, what we're doing is going back to where young people are learning some of the norms and attitudes um, and understanding themselves. And we're opening up these discussion spaces where they, and we're not lecturing them, we're saying, no, we want to give you the chance to actually think about what these pressures are, what these, what you're being told by your peers, by the media, and understand how, what consequences that has for you, what consequences it has for other people. And so uh, at schools, for instance, we have a three workshop program, each being two hours, each really highly interactive. And we just basically give the young people a chance to talk to each other and to hear about other people's experiences. And the first conversation is around identities, these stereotypes around masculinities and how it's impacting upon them. So we'll we'll hear young people say, yeah, like I feel that I can't I can't cry, I can't say I've got a problem, I can't express myself. You know, I, I, if I do that, I'm gonna lose face, I'm gonna get picked on, bullied, absolutely shunned by my peers. We know this has huge consequences for society with you know, with some studies showing three out of four men, adult men in the UK now, don't feel like they can actually ask for help and talk to someone about their problems, right? So big, big, big issues here, widespread. Yeah. And we can see it starting at that point. So we get that to the surface. Or yeah. we'll be talking about sex and consent and healthy relationships. And we're like, okay, yeah, everyone thinks they know about this in theory, but what are the ways that those pressures from your friends, those stories that the older boys are telling you, how are they impacted upon your ideas? And for some young people, they're like, well, I feel like I'm a complete failure, right? I, because I'm not sexually active, I, I'm not successful, or I feel there's something wrong with me because I'm not attracted to women. Or, uh, yeah, I'm competing. I'm constantly trying to prove myself by being the person who's got um, got the most attention from girls. Now, those issues, when we're talking to the, to the boys, initially we bring up about, well, how are you experiencing them? And then we say, well, what are the consequences then for other people around you? And we start to see that, you know, their own experiences very quickly link to homophobia that, that might they might be projecting outwards and very, very clearly link to uh, the sorts of attitudes that normalise uh, sexual violence and harassment that normalize um, non-consensual ideas about healthy relationships. So, you know, things such as if if someone says no to you, don't take it as a no, take it as a, as a reason to try harder. You know, see if you can come from a different angle and get them to change their mind, right? which is a really common idea, really widespread, but it's not an idea that actually says, I respect that person has given you a boundary and said they're not interested. And just take that as that. So those are the sorts of discussions we, we have with them um, that enable them to understand how they are a part of this, these broader sorts of issues that we're trying to solve collectively in, the ways, in ways that actually really enable and empower those young people to have a better relationship with themselves and with other people around them. It Interested to obviously hear you talk about masculinity and stereotypes around that, Dan. I hope I'm not stereotyping myself when I say this, but I don't think you and I have spoken about this before, but looking at your LinkedIn, you used to be a professional rugby player. 
And I wondered the, the extent to which any of your work now flows from any of your experience from that time um, and, and, and how that might link together your, your personal experience into what you now do professionally. Yeah, it, it does in, in two ways. Um, firstly, it put me in a position, probably a pivotal moment for me was when I came from Australia to England and started studying. And I remember arriving um, at the university and because of my background and obvious physical appearance that was a, as a professional rugby player, I mean, I, at that point, well, I'm still six foot six. And at that point, I think I'm <laughs> terrible on stones, but I was about 115 kilograms. So I was a really wow. big, really big, big guy. guy who arrived at the university. Um, and that instantly positioned me uh, as being accepted, as being looked up to by young guys in ways I hadn't really experienced before. I'd been very concerned with with training and studying and hadn't had time to socialize. Um, and then because I was accepted, I was brought into this world and then I had this big cultural clash. And my position as an outsider enabled me to see things that I was really uncomfortable with that had been normalized and accepted by that group. Uh, and I wouldn't have had such an insight as as being welcomed into the, that group if I didn't have that background. Now, very quickly after that, I began to realise like, hey, yeah, but if any of these people came to see how I interacted with my friends or how I grew up, they would similarly ha have those concerns and be really uncomfortable um, with lots of things that I had done. So it wasn't, and don't get me wrong and see it's a one-way judgement here, but it, it was a moment that cultural clash enabled me to step outside and see like, okay, there's, there's things that are normalised here that we're not aware about, and that was crucial. So the second way that it helped me was, I my story of becoming a professional athlete was, I desperately wanted to be one when I was at school, but just wasn't good enough. Like I, I wasn't the star of the team, I wasn't on the first team. I um, tried really hard, and I had a brother, a younger brother, who was already faster than me, fitter than me, uh, stronger than me, um, you know, despite the despite age gap, the age. Mm. and I was desperate to have that as part of my identity. And then and all of a sudden, like at the like age of 18, 19, I had a, a growth spurt and was signed up to play professional rugby, and it sort of happened very quickly, almost from nowhere. And I, I had this dream and um, carried me through. But unfortunately, my body started to break down, and almost at the same time that I was arriving in England, I went through a series of back surgeries. And the last one, they actually had to take out one of my discs in my spine and fuse it together and put in metal and oh, wow. all sorts of other things. And it was quite a big operation, you know, the fourth back surgery that I had. And it, it left me uh, temporarily um, disabled in quite significant ways. You know, I wasn't able to wash myself or shop or, you know, move around. I remember once I, I got... Um, you know the way the way that I was living on campus, I had to shower in a corridor, um, not in my own room, and the door closed behind me, and I couldn't turn to stop it. And I ended up, um, I ended up essentially having to walk through the main street of Oxford to get to the college um, in my towel, but hobbling <laughs> in my painfully slow place. It was incredibly embarrassing. It was right next to. Um, if anyone's been there, you have the Rad Cam. Uh, and you have the bridge of size. And mm. I had to essentially walk out and around from my accommodation to where the 
the porters kept their keys and walk past the Bridge of Sighs with hundreds of people taking photos um, in a towel <laughs> and with like a, a wound, a wound dressing on my back. So, and, and thank goodness you're not a big guy, Dan, so no one really would have noticed. <laughs> yeah, <exactly. laughs> <Slink> past <laughs> at snail's pace, hobbled. But the whole point here is there's a lot for me to process in that moment about my life had changed, the way I had to do things had changed. I had disability services coming in to help me. But the other thing that I was processing was that I genuinely felt like I had nothing to offer anybody else at this point. I can remember breaking down and crying with friends and saying, well, why, why is anyone going to want me around? Like, why are they going to invite me to dinner or to a party? Or Because I'm, I'm not the strong guy anymore. I can't do anything like that anymore. It's gone. And I was devastated in that moment, you know, broken. Um, I could also think and see from the outside and rationalise it to say, well, that's silly. Like, people obviously you know, loved me for, for many different reasons, not only because I was, like, tall and strong and could, could lift things, but in the moment I just had that, that grief of that, that loss of that identity. And when I take a step backwards, I can see just personally how invested and dependent I was on a really narrow definition of what it was to be a man and i didn't judge other people if well i tried not to judge other people if they didn't fit into that but certainly i gained so much of my strength and sense of self-worth and identity from being able to tick those boxes and be able to say i you know i'm big and strong and i can get things done and um i people like me um you know all of those things were were terribly important to me uh, and i i there started to realize well why are those things important to me where have those come from and would i be better off if i could actually find value that was broader than that and a sense of self-worth that was outside of that and that is a really key piece of work that we do with young people to help open up their spaces to explore those issues I'm now thinking, Dan, we should have scheduled four or five podcasts and had more time to uh, explore all of those things in more detail. It's fascinating and really interesting. Um, and, and thank you for, for sharing all of that, particularly because it's so personal, a lot of what you've just, just mentioned to us. We're, we're going to wrap up this first episode um, in, in a couple of minutes. But bef before we do that, Dan, I wonder, just coming back to Beyond Equality itself, whether you could pinpoint... Um, your 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 biggest success as a as a charity so far um bearing in mind all the the various all the background that you've given us so far yeah absolutely i, I think i think our biz, biggest success is that we've been able to adapt and change those conversations that we need to have for the different contexts that we go into so we're we've got relatively large medium size, small, medium size, maybe, I don't know. Um, but we've spoken to, for example, 46,000 people. And we've had those conversations, done this work with 46,000 people, ranging from schools and universities that I've spoken about a lot, but also in workplaces. We do a lot of work on male allyship, um, inclusive leadership. And I think what's been incredible is that we've been able to open up that space for a huge range of people from different cultural backgrounds, different sexualities, uh, different lived experiences, different professional backgrounds, um, from, from boys of the age of 12 through to men. We, we 
we've got volunteers who work with us who are in their 80s. So huge range of people. And we, we've been reasonably good at opening up those conversations to those different people. And I think for me, that's, that's a huge success. Um, that you can, that's enabled us to actually, in some ways, scale up, which is a, a really personal, close uh, conversation into something that still has that, but it's also bigger at this, at a national level, um, which is, yeah, for me, a really amazing success for the organisation. Thank you uh, very much, Dan, for that. And, and thank you very much for lending your time uh, to us for this podcast. Uh, it was you know, very interesting to learn more about your background and how that you know, formed Beyond Equality and how uh, you formed the charity as a result. And it's particularly interesting to know about kind of your own background as a rugby player and how that influenced uh, how that's influenced the charity as well and the work that Beyond Equality does in respect of uh, not just gender equality and and, uh, and violence but in terms of toxic masculinity and its approach to its teaching in schools and universities for its free workshop program um, and to also know about its most recent successes. There will be more conversation with Dan in our future podcasts uh, where we'll talk about uh, how Beyond Equality operates and the law. But for the time being, uh, that is it, as they would say. <laughs> Thank you very much, Dan. Thank you. Thank you very much.